Support for the Velo News Podcast this week is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the Mayo Jean when it comes to men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. So you can join over 2 million men worldwide who've trusted Manscaped with this exclusive offer to you, 20% off and free worldwide shipping when you use the code VELONEWS. That is uppercase VELONEWS at manscaped.com. I'm actually trying the Lawnmower 4.0 out this week. Well, I may be a Cat 5 when it comes to uh, manscaping, the Lawnmower 4.0 has me feeling like a world tour superstar. Why? With the 4.0, we're talking about a cutting edge ceramic blade, a 4000K LED spotlight to help you see where you're going, additional guard lengths from one to four to help you customize your look, wireless charging, and the advanced skin safe technology to reduce groin grooming accidents. Nobody wants that. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code VELONEWS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code VELONEWS. All uppercase VELONEWS. Unlock your confidence, always use the right tools, and get the job done with Manscaped. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast for Dryer coming to you on <laughs> it's a busy Tuesday morning. You guessed it. Um, hey, lot going on in today's podcast. Our second Tour de France podcast. We are going to analyze all the thrilling action from stage four. That's right. The Mark Cavendish wins his 31st stage stage. Uh, Andrew Hood and James Start are at the tour and they have a great chat about what this means for Cavendish, some of the backstory behind this win and uh, what some of the sights and sounds were like at the tour today with uh, Cavendish winning. Then second half of the podcast, I have a very special guest on. It's Brent Bookwalter and Brent is going to take us inside the 2011 Tour de France. That's right. This year marks the 10-year anniversary. I can't believe it's been 10 years already of the 2011 Tour de France. That, of course, the Cadell Evans win, which, you know, the more and more I think about this win, I, I start to realize how completely amazing it was and how um, unguaranteed it was. Like, there was no guarantee Cadell Evans was ever going to win the Tour de France, let alone Grand Tour. Uh, Grand Tour. And he made it happen. And as years go by, it just seems like more and more of an amazing victory. And Brent was first or second year World Tour pro. And he made the team and he had a bird's eye view, a rider's eye view, a squirrel's eye view. I keep struggling with these eyes view of the whole thing. He was a big part of it. And so he is going to take us inside the 2011 Tour de France. Hey, a lot going on in the Velo News universe. Um, we, of course, have our Outside Plus membership, which has given you all sorts of exclusive content from the Tour de France, some of the reporting and storytelling from Andrew Hood, James Start, and others, and all of the other good stuff, personalized feed, ad-free, exclusive content, discounts and gear, um, books from Velo Press, training from Today's Plan, Finisher Picks, Gaia GPS, a subscription to Outside Magazine. The list goes on and on. Check it out at velonews.com slash outside plus. We also have a really cool... Uh, sweepstakes going on this month, the uh, Stage Winner Challenge. That's right. If you're watching the Tour de France, you should participate in this because you could win a new specialized tarmac. All you have to do is go to our Tour de France page. You will find a link to the Stage Winner Challenge. And if you uh, register, you got to pick the winner of each stage. You are entered to win a bunch of cool prizes, including this uh, specialized tarmac. 
Really cool stuff. Thanks to Specialized for sponsoring this. And if you want to win and if you feel like you are smart enough to pick the winner every day, uh, check it out. It's on VelaNews.com right now. Um, thanks to all the listeners, too, who have been listening to the podcast. Uh, I've gotten some people reach out to me about my hit on NPR talking about the crash the other day. And I've had a few listeners reach out to me about yesterday's podcast and about my mention of the Steve Bartman incident and how... I mistakenly said it was a home run that he interfered with, and it indeed was a foul ball. Thank you, concerned listeners, for pointing out that, yes, Steve Bartman interfered with a foul ball during the NLCS. Uh, I remember that it was Moises Alou, but got the uh, home run versus foul ball wrong. I think I got it wrong because I actually was watching the 1996 ALCS when the Baltimore Orioles were playing the uh, Yankees. And this kid, Jeffrey Meyer, reached over the wall and snagged a home run. And that was like that was like Steve Bartman before it was Steve Bartman. I was also watching the 2007 Here Comes the Pizza game, if anyone cares about that. But uh, my baseball fandom ended a long time ago, and that's a whole other story. Anyway, Steve Bartman, it was a foul ball, not a home run. And if you are the unlucky <laughs> Tour de France viewer who caused the pileup on stage one, um, we hope that a Steve Bartman like situation does not occur to you. And um, again, everyone out there watching the race, be careful, everyone. Cyclists come by really fast and uh, you have the potential to impact the race. Anyway, thanks to all the listeners for chiming in. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Let's get on with the show. We're going to first hear from James and Andy and then hear from Brent Bookwalter. Welcome back to the Tour de France. I'm here, Andrew Hood, with... James Stark. We were back on the tour last year. We had a great time together. We're back on it again. Four days in, man. Just like Sepp Kuss said at the start today, James, three days felt like six. So four feels like... <laughs> four feels like, uh, like eight, Perhaps. something like that. Uh, I got to say, I was really happy to have a quiet, kind of ho-hum classic sprint stage today. I mean, it felt like the, the tour of old. You don't remember those days when, those years when... The whole first week was flat sprint stages, and you actually got bored on the Tour de France. I mean, when was the last time that happened, right? I know. You're exactly right. It's been nothing but uh, thrills and spills, at least from the start uh, in Brittany uh, on Saturday. Big names crashing, big names having an impact on the race. Caleb Ewan out. Uh, Ryder protests this morning a little bit. They wanted to put their foot down and say, this is not acceptable. Uh, that is that the tour? You know, we did that little Twitter poll. And uh, 40% of the respondees, we asked the question, who's at fault for what's happening these first couple of days? Was it UCI? Was it ACO? Was it the Riders? Or was it D? That's racing. And, and that came up number one. Yeah. I mean, apparently the, the main point of contention was that the Riders asked that the neutral zone, uh, you know, usually it's the last three kilometers, be pushed back to seven, I believe, uh, so that a lot of the guys that crashed uh, wouldn't have lost time. That seemed like a fair request to me. I mean, you know, how many times has, like, say, 30 guys finished out of the time zone in the mountains and they get reinstated so um, that would be a, certainly it seems to me a, 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 a reasonable way to um, deal with um, these stages when they are much more dangerous than you can expect because um, it's hard to plan out you know you as a race organizer come up with the best race route that's going to incite great racing but you don't know exactly what the weather conditions are going to be like or the road conditions that day and things can change quickly so if something gets out of hand you just and you can at least fall back on you know extending the neutral neutralized uh, kilometers in the end that seems reasonable but there was no unanimity in the peloton I talked to one um 
one uh, team manager, uh, Jerome Pinot of the BB Hotels, and he's like, you know, that's bike racing. Kind of agreeing with the forty percent of the, the Twitter uh, followers today. So there's, you know, there's no consensus here. Yeah, I mean, narrow roads, nerves. Everyone wants to be at the front. The race, the the sprint teams, the GC teams. Everyone believes they can get the yellow jersey. They can win the stage, and that is racing. That's what it is. You know, you got uh, 180 warm bodies. They're all trying to squeeze onto a road. It's three, four meters wide. Uh, it's the same story. It's repeated itself. Really hasn't it? every year How since, many I, since I've been to the Tour of France. And uh, but anyway, today you're exactly right. It was a routine stage. Uh, you know, in, in, in quotes, uh, no major uh, crashes, no major mishaps. Really short stage by tour standards and who won mark cavendish came up golden and who, who can't be happy for him and the guy was on the verge of retiring just giving you know he didn't know if he was going to race again let alone race in the tour de france again and you know coming back to quick step he found a, a family uh, that worked for him he said he should never have left the team and uh, you know considering where his results were uh, before, when he was on the team and where they are today he's probably right um, you know and they brought they give him Mark is you know very emotional rider he needs to feel well supported he needs to when he has confidence he's a beast when he doesn't he can, you know, he can get very vulnerable very quickly, and he's really struggled the last couple of years. Um, but he's back at home with Quick Step. It's clear that he's um, he feels the support of the team, and by chance, uh, with uh, Sam Bennett not being able to race and defend his green jersey, they won for for De Kooning last year. All of a sudden, the second house burner, Mark Cavendish. Is in the tour again, and what's he do? He pops a big one and wins his thirty-first stage. Yeah, I mean, absolutely amazing. I mean, Kevin is always a rider who wears his heart on his sleeve. And someone asked him at the press conference today, you know, Mark, is this about getting back at the people that doubted you? And he said, Oh, of course not. It's not about getting back at people who doubted me, but half the people in that press room have written nothing but bad stories about me for the last two or three years. <laughs> and, it, and it has been like that for Mark. I mean, he, he I call him Mercur- the mercurial mangster. You know, he, he is, uh, he's a special kind of breed. I mean, he came up, remember, through the ranks. You know, he was just a young kid coming off the track, had that finishing speed. And, you know, some people thought he was too chubby and too fat to be really a, a world tour rider. He proved everybody wrong. Uh, but, yeah, that backstory, James, coming into uh, this tour, you know, Sam Bennett, you know, was supposed to be the lead sprinter. There's more to this story than we know right now. We're all trying to figure out exactly what's going on. The rumor is that Sam Bennett is heading to Bora Hansgrow next year. That always has kind of plays into, you know, who gets selected. And uh, Lefebvre, Petra Lefebvre has been dropping some bombs over the last several days. Every time you talk to, uh, put a mic in his face, he's saying something crazy about Sam Bennett. But man, it's like uh, that door opened just a crack for Cavendish and he squeezed through it like he's sprinting. He goes, I'm going back to the Tour de France. And he did it. And he, I mean, hey, that was the first sprint stage. Cavendish won. Uh, second one, right? We had one yesterday, obviously. But there are more. There are several more. And it might not be his last. Yeah, it might not be. I mean, the, um, the the story with Cavendish, too. I mean, today he was talking about how much it meant to him. He goes, it's not just uh, the fact that I've won 30, now 31 stages. that every stage to win the Tour de France is so, so hard. Everyone is so, so special. Yeah. He, I mean, you know, he, he said the Tour de France gave me everything. I am who I am today because of the Tour de France. And, and you know, he mentioned that first, uh, I think his first stage win uh, was in Chateauroux where we're going to be going, uh, what is it, the day after tomorrow's time trial. And obviously he's going in with, you know, huge motivation. It's a, he'd already won here actually in, in Fougere and he may be uh, winning again. Or, you know, he, he's going to, 
go back to a place that's familiar for him where he's already succeeded. He's going to go back with tons of confidence and it's a perfect stage. I mean, it's a really flat stage. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought today, today's stage and, and like you said, uh, the day after tomorrow was ideal for Cavendish because, you know, after we come out of this first week, it's going to be straight into the Alps, straight into the double climb of Mont Ventoux and then really straight into the Pyrenees. And I really don't think Cavendish is going to be making it to Paris. And I don't think he expects to get there either. Are you one of those uh, guys in the press room that is writing all that? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, we, I just write the facts. Write the facts. Okay. But, I mean, how far do you think Cavs are making this tour? You know, Cav is just one of those riders. He is capable of everything. And sometimes nothing. But when, you know, it's just, you know, when, again, a guy, a guy who has won 31 stages in Tour de France, you just can never count out. I will not count that guy out. A champion's a champion. Don't count those guys out ever. Um, you know, how many, like, how many times have we said, ah, Sagan's not winning like he used, used to win, and all of a sudden he pops a huge victory. I mean, those guys class are great. class. Yeah. And, and, you know, Cavendish is, you know, top-notch pedigree. So, I'm not going to count him out. No way. I'm not. I'm just not. But I, I you know, it's, it's obviously, he's got, like you said, um, he's got a great opportunity in two days. We'll see what happens there. And then after that, things are going to get tough for a while. Um, I mean, like three, four days, we're going to be in the mountains in like three days. Uh, and we're going to be going back to Grand Bonon, uh, where Julien Philippe uh, won one of his great stages about three years ago. Uh, so, the, you know, we're back in the Alps in this weekend. And it's going to be a, you know, a whole different game. Yeah, personally, I don't see Cavendish making it to Paris. Uh, why? Because he, I don't think he's finished the Tour de France. I don't have my notes in front of me right now. But at least since 2015. He left early in 2016 to go to the Olympics. That's the last year he won a stage until today. He won four four stages and left early. Remember, that was a very controversial decision. He went. He wanted to go to, uh, to the Olympics and try to win the Omnium Gold. And uh, I just, I mean, he hasn't, uh, I was doing some research before the tour started. He has not ridden a stage race that is, was longer than 10 days for sure since uh, 2015, 16. So I just don't see him getting up and over these mountains. But like you said, you never know. Negropetto is part of that whole equation of getting up and making the time, uh, time gaps. You know, so will he be able to hang with the Gruppetto? Maybe. And there are probably at least six more stage sprints in this tour. I mean, and Caleb Ewan crashed out yesterday. Um, we have Tim Merlier, who was very fast the day before yesterday. And, you know, will he make it to Paris? Maybe not. Um, yeah, Peter Sagan. There's not a lot, a lot of spinners here. I mean, Nasser Buhani was third and second today. Yeah. So it's not like the creme de la creme is here. And like you said, Cav is Cav. Yeah, I, would, I won't count him out. But I'll tell you one, one, one race where I will count him out. That's tomorrow's time trial. He will not win that. Okay? No scoop here, I know. And, and Cav, you can't get mad at me for saying that. I'm sorry. I just don't believe you're going to win this time trial tomorrow. But it's going to be a whole different race. And who is going to win it? I mean, we got a bunched up group of big favorites. We got, uh, you know... Matthew Vanderpool says has said he does not feel like he's going to be able to, to maintain his lead, um, which doesn't surprise me. I mean, he guy does so many things: mountain biking, cyclocross, you know, classics and all. And time trialing has become such a specific game, you know, with so much time on wind t- tunnel testing and, and positioning and and all of these things. And it's you know, you really have to devote time to that. To, to, to shine in that. And guys, I mean, Julian Ali Philippe. I was talking with the guys that specialize. He's done. He's done wind tunnel testing. He's done some significant changes in his position. Um, and, you know, as he showed two years ago, um, he can time trial now with the best of them on, on a given day. Then 
how many guys are within like 30 seconds? The Wood Van Art, uh, Pogachar is right there. Uh, there's a whole lot of guys who can really pull a big time trial that are all within about 30, 31 seconds, I believe. Uh, so it's going to be real interesting tomorrow and see, to see who comes out in yellow. Well, I think it's going to be absolutely critical to the overall fight to who's going to win this Tour de France, the, the time trial. Because, why? Because Garrett Thomas crashed, dislocated his shoulder. Now, I broke my clavicle a couple of years ago, and my shoulder is still jacked up. I can't imagine trying to to ride a time trial in a time trial position at 72 hours or, or 48 hours after dislocating my shoulder. Well, you know what, Andy? You're not Garrett Thomas. I'm not Garrett Thomas. <laughs> you know, these guys are beasts. And that's, I mean, and they have so much medical support. Um, you know, same with Roglic. Roglic crashed hard two days ago. He showed pictures of all that road rash. Uh, you know, it's it, it's hard to imagine that they're going to be on top of their game at their best, their very best. Um, I said both suffering, I think, in some way, shape or form. And you need to be 100% at your best. They need to be at 100% of the best to to get that crucial time here. Um, I know that Roglic was hoping to get some time maybe on Pogacar or some of the other rivals, but is he going to be able to dig deep with that with that uh, left hip that's all beat up? I don't know. Well, that's the big question because this stage was critical, I think, to both Garrett Thomas and Primo Roglic to really get at least even with Pogacar or perhaps even get a head start going into the mountains. This is a day that this will be a day that they both need to perform. Now they both crash quite heavily. I mean, Garrett Thomas his crash two days ago was terrible. Uh, Roglic yesterday went down so hard. I mean, he went down and you know, he got body slammed by Cobrelli, who, who said that he got body slammed as well. And Roglic just went straight down on his left side. So he's totally ripped up. And that's going to affect his time trial position. I was speaking to um, Richard Pluga this morning, in fact, and I asked him, I'm like, how much time do you, you know, what's your expectations for the time trial against Pogacar? And he surprised me. He said, we expect to lose one and a half minutes to Tadej Pogacar in, the, in this flat time trial, 30Ks. So that's that's basically three seconds a minute they expect to lose to Pogacar. And that's that was my reaction as well, because James is making faces over here. And I had to repeat myself. I said, did you say one and a half minutes or a half minute? He goes, oh, one and a half minutes. And uh, because of the re- because of the crash or? No, this was their expectation before Roglic even crashed. I mean, you could be talking, you know, mind games. These guys like to play this three-dimensional right. chess game. Who knows? But, uh, I mean, Pogacar, you know, he's looking pretty solid right yeah. now, isn't he? Coming out of this first weekend, he didn't crash. He got caught up behind crashes, but he hasn't gone down. Yeah, no, he's he's uh, obviously the big favorite. He's just riding on cloud nine right now. I mean, he has a, he, nobody has had a, as good of a opening race. Let's just remember, this is a long tour. Long this, tour. this is a long tour. Um, but the uh, the thing with Pogacar, uh, one thing I was kind of poking my nose around the last couple of days is, you know, you look at on paper, the team of Pogacar, relatively young, pretty thin. We've been talking about this in the car uh, every day when we're driving around. And, you know, the Jumbo Visma, Ineos, you know, Bora, Quickstep, they have all these big brawlers. And we're looking at these profiles in these stages. I mean, you know, you, you live in France, you know, these stages during Paris can get huge howling winds. But I looked at the uh, you know the forecast. No wind at all. Uh-huh. No wind at all on Thursday or Friday. Almost. And then so on the other side of uh, the the route, we have the Rhone Valley. There's a couple of stages down there. That's a Mistral can be kicking in there. But you know when you look at last year's right. tour, the only day that Pogacar lost time was when he got gapped out in the splits. Well, Cola Luz, Cola Luz also. 
Yeah, not very much though. 15, 15 seconds. Yeah, hey, 15 seconds or 15 seconds. Yeah, he, he lost 120 uh, on that day of the split, and everyone thought his GC was over. Yeah. So to me, it seems like the only soft underbelly of Tadej Pogacar is his team and echelons. But I was, I was asking around this morning, I asked Brandon McNulty, he said, oh, you know, we'll, I think we're doing, we'll do better than people expect. And then he said, you know, it's Tadej Pogacar. He doesn't even need a team. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way he's racing like he doesn't need a team right now. I got to say that. I mean, he is amazing. Uh, but yeah, we were uh, we were worried that the, uh, the the possible weakness, you know, for Pogacar was going to be on these on these flatter, more complicated stages where maybe the some of the, uh, the big you know classics teams could take it to him and in, in in the wins and stuff. And in the end, um, you know, some of them are the ones who are suffering more. Um, he's just ridden brilliantly. There's just no other way to say it. And it, you know it's been interesting, really, in this uh, in this first weekend, uh, these first four stages, a lot of crashes, but there's been no rain. There's been no real significant wind. You know, there's always talking about how you know these these races can be so brutal up here. I felt like that they had some rain. Eh, not very, not very much. Yesterday, I had a could have been a, rain. a couple of outbursts, but it wasn't like you know these these driving storms right. that can happen sometimes. And uh, going across next week, uh, I think it's going to be. I don't know. I mean, looking at the way the race is stacked up, you know, it, it happens every year. You know, let's talk quickly about uh, Ineos Grenadiers. Um, they came in with four leaders, and now they got one left standing. You know, that's disaster not, for them. That is not good news for them because obviously, Kamp has a flying, and cars, I think, you know, obviously podium. But his strength was numbers, and having you know guys like Port and and Thomas um, being in the thick of it. Which allowed him, you know, some some free reign. So, you know, things have not gone according to plan for them at all, uh, and we'll just see. But the only thing about them, uh, Ineos, is that you know, ever since uh, uh, Teo's uh, victory in the Giro last year, you know, David Brailsford seems to have discovered there's a, there's a new way of racing, and they're not the dominant team they were. They can't race like that anymore. They just have to, you know throw some bombs and really be reckless and dangerous and not be afraid to lose if they want to win. That's exciting. That's good news for bike racing. I'm glad that I'm glad they're doing that now. So again, the team that knows how to win, a team that knows how to win the Tour de France like seven times. Um, they have tactically proven themselves in to be able to exploit when they're in a position of force, but also when they're not. So, you know, you know, I don't count, you know, class is class. What's what is true for an individual like Cavendish or Sagan? It's true for a team, and um, don't count them out. But I wonder though, is the pivot fr- away from uh, you know the sky train toward this new kind of multi-dimensional attacking? Is that because cycling's changed, or because they don't have the guy who can finish off the job? You had Chris Froome there, who really was the Miguel Indurain of his, of his time, or you know he was the five-time winner. He'll, he'll he's won four. You know, some things have happened, gotten in the way of Chris Froome becoming a five-time winner. But you had Chris Froome, who was a guarantee. Now they don't have that. They have the same team. You know, if they put Pogachar on Team Scott or Ineos, and, you know, maybe everyone thought it was going to be Bernal. You know, we'll see. Bernal won the Giro. Maybe he's going to come back next year, and he'll kind of go back into that slot, and maybe he will be the guy that can, like, just carry the, the banner for the team. But I think it's like they're trying to find their way because they don't have Chris Froome anymore. No. That's a different story. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting, you know, after uh, uh, Teo's uh, victory in the Giro, you know, David was saying, you know, oh, this is the way we got to race. This is the new future. But yeah, the question that was being begged was, well, what happens? What would happen if you had a Chris Froome back in your team, a Miguel Ender? And, you know, would you still want to race recklessly or would you go back to the, the old way of racing? Um, 
you know, we'll we'll, we'll see. Uh, no, uh, I, I certainly don't count Bernal out. And if you know, I was at the Giro, and he raced brilliantly, but. He's a different rider. It's going to be more exciting uh, if Bernal comes in 100%. It's going to just be more exciting because why? Because he can't. He, I mean, he's an adequate time trial. He's a decent time trial, but he can't time trial at the level of Pogachar or Roglic. So he's going to have to really go on the attack in the mountains, which always makes for great racing. Yeah, as we wrap this up uh, for the first episode here of the Velo News podcast from France with James and Hui, uh, the most important story, really, James, is the, the press buffet. They've been pretty good so far. I'm going to say they have not been. Um, they have not been quite as um, miserable as, as we sometimes uh, recall. You know, they can be downright decrepit. I mean, yesterday was a roast pig. I mean, come on, how good is that? You liked that, didn't you? I saw you, saw you taking pictures of the, of, of, of the roasted pig and all. I, was, I didn't take a picture of that. I just decided... For your vegetarian friends. No, I just decided there might be some better images to get on that, on that day. But, you know, whatever. Um, it was pretty tasty, I will admit. Speaking of which, I think we have... Um, some some tasty food at the brass re waiting for us and maybe some rosé and you know and maybe a little bit of red wine or something. Oh, we don't we do, are we don't, in we France. Don't do that. We don't do that. No, but we're in France. All right. Well thanks for listening. From the Tour de France, this is James Stark. This is Andrew Hood. We'll check in soon. Thank yeah. you. Again, today's episode brought to you by Manscaped. You can get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code VELONEWS, uppercase VELONEWS, at manscaped.com. That's right, 20% off and free shipping when you go to manscaped.com and use the code uppercase VELONEWS. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Okay, and now joining the podcast in a break from his daddy duties, it's Brent Bookwalter coming to us from the United States. Brent, sounds like you are a couple days from going back over to Europe to get back to racing. And then, of course, the big news this year is that you have decided to retire at the end of the season. Let me be the first podcast host in the Vela News podcast space to congratulate you on this big decision. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, I think maybe you're the first podcast podcast host uh, period is um, maybe the yeah, first one I've done since uh, announcing that news. But um, yeah, it's been a wild ride and one I'm really proud of. But uh, I feel like it's time to, yeah, plant the victory flag on the cycling career and excited to move on. What's next? When I got the news, it brought back some memories of the really early parts of my own career with Velo News um, covering collegiate nationals. I remember I was at the 2005 Collegiate Nationals when I believe you won, or Lisa McRae won, and that was sort of right as you were transitioning into your pro career. And it dawned on me, I was like, wow, this guy's been racing professionally as long as I've been a professional journalist. And um, it just sort of puts into perspective, like you you have been doing this a really, really long time. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, it's, I know, it's nice to think we both have the collegiate roots. Um, yeah, it was a long time ago. A lot at, at that point, I never would have dreamed that uh, the career that I've had would transpire from that. Um, yeah, a lot's a lot's changed. A lot of um, a lot of joyful moments, but really challenging ones too, and uh, some war wounds to show from all the all the battling in the in the trenches of the pro cycling scene. But um, yeah, I'm proud to have come that far, and um, it's, it's been a wild ride. I'm, I'm still 
I'll still always be a fan of the sport and I'll still always be riding. So nothing's going to change there. Well, again, congrats on a having such a long career, but also, you know, having some pretty amazing moments in your career. And that's why I had you on the podcast today was when I was looking at this year's Tour de France and some of the milestones we were coming up on, we came, we were coming up on the 10 year anniversary of the 2011 Tour de France. That, of course, was Cadell Evans's tour. And, um, you know, it's so, there's so many interesting dynamics when I think back on that 2011 Tour de France from Cadell winning it when, you know, he was, I think, in his mid-30s at that time. There were there were no guarantees that Cadell Evans was ever going to win the Tour de France. I mean, he was a very good Grand Tour racer, but, you know, he wasn't like a Pogacar or a Bernal where you can look at them as a U23 and say, oh, yes, this guy is definitely going to, like, win the Tour. Um, and then, you know, the eras that that win sat in between and the dynamics of the race, and there was just a lot going on with that race. And uh, when I was thinking about who I wanted to talk to about it, I was like, wait, Bookwalter was a big part of that team. He had a front row seat for uh, the 2011 Tour. Um, and I guess a place, I mean, I wanted to start off for you. It's like, I know it's been 10 years and there's a lot that's been gone, that's gone on, but are there any memories from that race that are still really crisp? Like when you think back to the 2011 Tour de France, what are the images that like initially crisp just pop back into your head? Yeah, I've been reflecting on it quite a bit lately. I've been... Um back in touch with Cadell and some of the other boys on that team. Um, just in the past week, we've been kind of forgot 10 years have gone by since then. Um, feel makes me feel old. Dates me. Um, but yeah, so, so much vivid stuff from that race. Um, in general, when I, when I look back at it now, um, right from the beginning, I remember this, this feeling of just arriving at the race. Um, myself, George and Cappy, Marcus Burkhart, Manuel Quinziato. We had, um, we had some travel complications just getting to the start. Uh, I'd been in an altitude camp, super tense, um, you know, all keyed up, ready to go. Um, all sorts of travel problems. And um, Andy Reese um, was kind enough to, to loan out his, one of his private planes. And we um, we flew there from our altitude camp in style. And then it was a bit of a smack in the face. and went from that to arrive in France at this Campanile Hotel, which is so classic Tour de France. It's like the one of the lower rungs of accommodation um, in the whole race. Uh we had the long, like five day pre-race, um, pre-race get together there. And, um, and then, yeah, we're straight into it, um, that year that, um, team time trial was really early and really, um, I feel like decisive for setting us up and setting Cadell up. Um, so that was that, that preparation for that and the execution of that was really vivid. Um, Cadell's win on the Mirror de Britannia. Um, that was, that moment was really vivid when they finished up there, I was replaying that day and the hecticness of that and Cadell's last minute, um, mechanically had before the final climb and going on to win. Um, what else? Yeah. Just, um, battling with the teams, you know, the tension knowing, I think we knew Cadell was good and we knew he could do it. Um, but like you said, it wasn't, he wasn't the only favorite. He wasn't probably the outright favorite and we knew we had to just put it together one day at a time. So watching these first few stages of the tour this year, that year has come back into my mind because I see the, the intensity and the, the sort of grim, just aggression on everyone's face of pushing, pushing, pushing and how close everyone is together and how tense it is. And then you see that touch of wheels and you see, you know, dominoes fall down behind. And there was one moment in the first week of that tour for us where I remember having Cadell on my wheel and we were moving, fighting up the side for every inch of road, you know, off and on the road, off and on the road, just, trying to smash and push up as far as we can. And I was kind of doing the head shake, like looking behind me, like, do we have to keep, like, we can't keep doing this. And he just kept saying, just, you know, 
stay on it, keep going, stay focused, keep moving forward, keep pushing, keep pushing. And then just like that, one of these first week crashes happened, and that was the one that took uh, Bradley Wiggins out. Um, and that was a decisive moment of the race um, for sure. Because, you know, maybe on paper he was, um, you know, up there with one of the one of the favorites um, for the overall. So, yeah, watching the first week of this year's tour, um, that's those are some of the moments that sort of stick out in my mind and come back. But there's moments like that in memories and drama. Um, all the way through to the uh, the elation of the the ride into Paris. Now, what can you say about where you were at in your own career at that point? You know, you're selected to be on this tour team with Cadell. He's one of the favorites. You're young, um, but it's a you know really competitive team and a big honor to be on this team. What did it mean for you at that moment to be uh, selected for the squad? A oh, huge honor. Um, I think I've I've gained appreciation for what it means and the the battle it was to get on there as I've gone through my career. I think that was only my third grand tour I'd done the year before I did the Giro and the tour my first year doing them. Um, so I, I didn't, you know, I didn't quite have an appreciation of the sort of the dynamics, even from some of my older teammates, you know, that were in the squad um, in terms of getting selected. I was rooming with Alessandro Balan at Tour de Suisse and we were both, on, both on the cusp for a spot. And this is a guy who was a world champion and um, you know, Paul Maris precedes himself. So um, it was by no means a foregone conclusion that I was going to be there. But at the same time, I think the year prior had given, given the team and Cadell a lot of confidence in me. Um, part of that was youth and ambition and I think versatility. Um, and I did feel like, I just felt like I had to ride the best I could. And if I was riding that level, I would go. Um, and that was even echoed in the sentiment from Cadell earlier in the year. I broke my collarbone and bolted to Catalonia. And for me, I was sort of like, well, now I'm, now I'll definitely not get to do the tour. You know, I had this big injury in the spring and Cadell was just really um, confidence inspiring and calm. And I remember being in the airport with him with a, my arm in a sling and him just reassuring me, you know, you're going to be there in July with us. I need you there. I want you there. You're going to come back. Um, and really the, in hindsight of my career, those, those voices of confidence um, and those affirmations of confidence are so powerful. And, you know, a lot of times in the hunt for, optimization and success. I think we lose that a little bit. It's such a ferocious battle and so competitive that, you know, there's not a lot of, um, uh, you know, committed confidence, um, through the, through the organizations and with each other. So that was, that was huge for me. That's really interesting. So you say that, I mean, that's a good segue into one of my other questions a little further down the list, but you know, Cadell, like from a personality standpoint, we as fans and as journalists knew him one way, which was from the press conferences and sort of, you know, the way he was talking to the media and in front of the cameras. But I'm sure you guys got to have a completely different type of relationship with him. And I'm really curious, how would you describe his leadership style? Like, was he a, you know, stand on top of the table and deliver, a, you know, Julius Caesar style speech? Or was he more of a behind the scenes kind of quiet guy? Like, how did Cadell go about motivating you guys specifically during that tour? Yeah, I think I've gained perspective on that as I've gone through my career too and worked with different leaders. At the time, he was the only Grand Tour contender I had worked for. Um, but I would say meticulous. You know, and his personal preparation and his team preparation was so exhaustive and meticulous. And I think his his relationship with me um, and with his teammates was like that too. You know, he saw the integral role we would play in the power of a team. Um not just out on the road, but believing in him and buying in and being committed. Um, so there was a, a sort of quiet, calm, behind the scenes, um, personal connection and, um, and confirmation of that confidence that, that really played in and I think served him well. I think he had, as he had battled prior to that 2011 year in his career for other Grand Tour podiums, he had 
really mixed experiences with teammates and factions and teams and, um, you know, up against, you know, whether it be sponsor stuff or other star riders. And he saw this as an opportunity where, you know, the BMC racing team had really built that team around him. And we had, we had some real experienced superstars on the team, but everyone was committed and very selfless. And um, I don't think he took that for granted. He saw it as a, you know, a real opportunity for him. And um, he sort of reminded he reminded me that this was an opportunity to come together and do something bigger than oneself. And to hear him say that was unique because he is one of the best. It is about oneself for him. He is the leader and he's the star, but for, for him to sort of, um, you know, teach us that or be part of teaching me that as a young rider was influential for my whole career. And I think even life off the bike. It's, it's so funny you say that because yeah. Um, you know, there was, and we mentioned before it, but Cadell's this guy who'd been around forever. He'd been racing mountain bikes early in his career. He'd raced Grand Tours. He'd been on T-Mobile. He'd be, you know, he'd been with some of these big programs where he was just a cog in the wheel or sort of a second tier star. And with BMC, he has this real opportunity and, you know, mentioned it before. There was there was no guarantee he was going to win. When I think about Cadell's win and I compare it to like NBA championships, I see it as like the 2011 Dallas Mavericks with Dirk Nowitzki, where it was like, hey, Great team, you know, like great group of guys. But on paper, you're never going to say, yeah, it's LeBron James. They're they're guaranteed to win. You know, they're going to have a cakewalk to the win. It's like a lot of things have to go perfectly. And, you know, the guy has to race out of his brain and have everything kind of work out for him to to put it all together. And I feel like we kind of lose sight of that, in, especially in the, the last few years of Tour de France racing, where, you know, you have Ineos with his budget and this group of guys where it's like, oh, of, of course they're going to win with Froome or someone else they're so much stronger but like in 2011 that wasn't the case and I was reading back up on it it was like you had Ivan Basso coming in a year after he wins the Giro Andy and Frank Schleck on Leopard Alberto Contador who on paper you'd probably say was the strongest guy but he was dealing with the clenbuterol thing and there was all this stuff swirling around him. You know, Bradley Wiggins with Team Sky and I believe their first or maybe their second. I think it was his first tour with them with a bunch of, you know, funding and energy and even had guys like Vinokurov and stuff. I mean, who do you remember uh, keeping your eyes on when you came into that tour? Who did you really who, who do you guys remember? Who do you remember as being like the real sort of uh, rivals or the big riders you were keeping an eye on? Yeah, honestly, for me, the point I was at in my career being quite young and only, you know, really my second year into racing entirely at this level, I was a little naive and blinded. Um, but I think that was also a, a component of our focus and where we put our focus. We didn't we didn't go in thinking we had to beat anyone. Um, I think we went in thinking we have to do the best race that we can every day and then see where that leaves us. Um, and, yeah, that's been a lesson for, you know, my whole career, I think, uh unless you're it is a little different some of these some of these guys who win you know five tours in a row it's a little more um you could argue it makes it look mechanic and auto, uh, mechanical and automated um but yeah we knew that we we just focused every day on controlling what we could control and executing you know our plan the best we could and really going day by day and i think you saw that even in the way the race played out we weren't we weren't saying we had to take the jersey on this day or we had to be in this position in this day it was really counting the seconds every day and Cadell, you know, from being so close in the past, um, you know, missing it by seconds. Um, he was so aware of every second mattering. And so that was, that was our sort of our mantra, um, out on the road and day to day was, you know, one day at a time, one second at a time. And, um, 
not give up any and take them every chance you get. Well, it's interesting you say that too, because when I think about the 2011 tour and also sort of the sort of that 2008, 9, 10, 11 tours, it was also this transition period for the sport where you were coming out of this era, you know, the, now the known as the EPO era into the new era that we're in, where, you know, before you'd seen this dramatically different racing style of guys like going on all day breakaways in the Alps and, you know, winning by 10 minutes or teams that were so strong, they could just like, put the hammer down on everyone and you'd still see like four or five guys on the same team with a couple content other contenders you know at the start and the, the margins of victory were huge and it wasn't necessarily like trying to pinpoint every you know seconds here and there like people would do these hail mary things and you know we now know why but it was just looking back at those old tours you're like wow what a different racing style compared to what we see now and when i think about that 2011 tour I felt like it was a quote, quote unquote, modern tour in that era, in that, in that sense. It was, you know, there were some big moves, but it was kind of this race of attrition and battle for seconds here and there. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. What do you remember about sort of the style of racing in that tour and how you saw um, the style of racing the Grand Tour level, you know, even progress um, after that? For me in my career um, and looking also as a fan and not just someone in the race, um, it, it was a transition and it was sort of um, a transition into that, uh, that GC team riding like a sprint team on the sprint stages, you know, yeah, Lance and those guys at postal service, they, they did that also. They were always on the front. Um, but you know, like you said, that was a different time and that was with Lance who had won, you know, countless tours. Um, so I think, and seeing how the, how everyone's riding now and being in some grand tours since then and watching the race this year, that that's, it's just, you know, gone on a crazy um a crazy run since then all the all the gc teams are fighting for every second all the time and this this train of the teams packed across the road not just for the final 20k but we're talking for like you know 120k um setting up so far out um and i remember that vividly i remember you know bashing heads and getting into it with mark cavendish because he was so frustrated his team is working their asses off trying to win the stage and we're up there right next to him you know you could argue essentially getting in their way um, but that was, yeah, transitioning into this, this sort of modern era of Grand Tour racing. That's what we decided we needed to do. And that's what Cadell wanted to do. And, um, that's what George and Cappy wanted to do. He had the experience of being with Lance for all those years. And that's what he said was going to be needed. And oftentimes I was a bit of the, the sacrificial, even scapegoat, um, for those moves. And in those times they, they could pin the like, oh, he's the young new American. Um, this is only a second tour. He doesn't know what he's doing. Sorry. He's annoying you. And then afterwards, they'd be like, you know, awesome job, man, patting me on the back. Thanks for taking that shit for us. You know, we'll try to calm them down for the for the next day so they don't totally kill you. And George was always brokering truces with me and other riders because I was getting all fired up at them and them at me and very heated. So the crux of that race comes down to stage 18. This is the big old Galibier stage where, you know, Thomas Folkler, he got the, the jersey and was sort of holding on to it by his uh, fingernails. And Andy Schleck knew that he needed to put some time into Cadell Evans going into the final time trial. And he does this big breakaway and has a ton of time on the group, on the Galibier. And it comes down to you guys and eventually Cadell to try and pull that gap back um, on this crazy Alp mountain, mountain stage. Um, now, 10 years later, I mean, what do you remember about that stage, about your own ride, the team's ride, and then Cadell's ride? Sulphur City, yeah, that was a big day stage. Uh, what was it, 19 um, in the Alps? And, yeah, I remember being quite intimidated by it and extremely tired. Um, but 
still enthusiastic and going for it. And I, I found myself in the, the early break of that day. Um, I think um, Schleck had two teammates in there and we saw how they were forcing it and the, the aggressive play they were doing to keep that, keep themselves out there as long as possible and really push. So that was when I was already, you know, an- anticipating something going down. Um, and so thankfully for me, that meant, you know, I, I was in no condition to be contesting any sort of performance up to Glivia at the end, but really happy and proud to perform a, a team role for Cadell. So yeah, for me, it meant linking up um, with Cadell, I think over the, the penultimate big climb, I think it was quad de fer, um, and helping with some pacemaking there and, um, and looking after him. We didn't have a, you know, our team wasn't stacked with the world's best climbers. So, you know, we weren't, we were fighters, you know, we were just fighting to stay in there and, um, and picking up, kind of picking up each other's slack on each day. You know, one day one of us would kind of climb out of our skin and the next day if someone would have a little off day, the other would step up or vice versa on the, the more technical flatter stages. And, and that day was a good example of that. Um, I came back from the break and took care of him over that, that middle section. And then then we had Steve Morbido and Emil Monard with him as long as they could into the Glibier. And then, yeah, he, Cadell did what champions do, took the bull by the horns and realized that his time was then and, and went for it and had all that. It was like he, that and the, the, the day after in the time trial, it was like he had that whole, all of his career and all of his hard work and all the heartbreak of the close calls, just, you know, pouring out of them and backed by, you know, peak physical condition and, um, and delivered a, a phenomenal ride. I remember riding up to Glibier after I was dropped, just dumping through groups, hanging, trying to hang on to guys as they came over and by me in one of the lower corners down a big like, jumbo John TV and seeing him looking up there and just being on the front, just, you know, riding everyone off his wheel and just, uh, yeah, got the, <laughs> that uh really 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 excited feeling he's gonna do it i mean when i think back the last 20 years 25 years of tour de france history that is one of the seminal moments of cadell evans riding the front for the entire galibier in his big ring out of the saddle not ex- not really attacking just pushing a big really steady gear and climbing up that thing to close the gap and uh, put himself in contention to win the tour on that uh, last time trial, and it was it was a heck of a fun race to watch. And I got to imagine it was a really heck of an awesome uh, victory to be a part of too. Yeah, yeah, unreal. Yeah, the surreal feeling um, the next day riding into Paris. It felt like that a little out of body. I had all these images stamped in my head. You know, watching the tour growing up of the, the leaders team rolling into the Champs Elysees. And their yellow, yellow stuff, their yellow, uh, yellow accessories, and um, and then to find myself in that position, it sort of, yeah, felt like I was like on the outside of looking in at this image that was stamped into my mind through my whole childhood. So, yeah, pr- proud moment I won't forget. Well, Brent, it was a major highlight in your career, but not the only one. And um, we have been, you know, I can only speak for myself here, at Vela News. We've had a great time following you over these uh, last 10, 15 years of pro cycling, and. Um, give you all the kudos in the world for what you've accomplished um, we're going to let you get back to your uh, your dad and packing duties but would love to catch up with you later in the week and uh, talk tour and hear what you're up to the rest of the season yeah let's do it thanks for having me Fred always good to uh, reconnect and yeah even if I'm not racing after this year I'll still be still be around and uh, pestering you and hopefully catching up and uh, maybe even a fun ride or two down the track oh for sure and hey open door policy here at the Villain News Podcast Brent uh, Bookwell, you're a gold card member. You can uh, you can come <laughs> on whenever you would like. Honor, thanks, Fred. Let's do it.